The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. It's a Thursday edition of PFT PM. Busy week. Unexpectedly busy week. A lot to get to, but instead of me meandering through the various topics, I have an interview that I taped a little while ago with Charles Robinson of Yahoo. Ostensibly, I wanted to talk to Charles about the Colin Kaepernick collusion grievance, but my conversation with him became like some of the other interviews that we've had, whether it was Chris Sims or Ian Rappaport, where it's just two guys talking on the phone and... Maybe you'd like to eavesdrop on it. That's kind of how it all played out. We ended up discussing a variety of different issues. So instead of me saying what I think about this, what I think about that, what I think about this, I'm just going to let you hear the interview with Charles Robinson. Then on the other side, we'll see what kind of questions the PFTPM policy has. It's about 40 minutes with Charles Robinson. So I think you'll be intrigued by it. I think it's a good back and forth. I found it to be an interesting exchange. There's only one way for you to find out. I'm going to play it right now. Joining us now on the program, his second visit. One of the rare, I think, two-time PFTPM visitors. In part because we don't have a lot of visitors, but we had a great discussion (laughs) with Charles Robinson a while ago. We didn't get to the Colin Kaepernick case, and and I said, we'll do this again at a more appropriate time, and I can't think of anything more appropriate than one day after the NFL's clumsy effort to make a bad situation better, but somehow they made a bad situation worse. Yeah, no no shortage of material right now. I, I think with each passing hour, we uh, a little more crumbles away from you know the story of Roger Goodell standing up in front of everyone and talking about this um, you know unanimous. Uh, passing of of the new anthem rule amongst ownership, and now there, you know, we're finding out there wasn't even a vote. There was abstention, and you know, clearly multiple franchises not did not appear to be on board with this. And uh, it's just one thing after another with this. It's never going away. And and obviously, as you predicted, Donald Trump is never going away. No, that's the thing. There's no good way out of this for the NFL. You're not going to take the emperor a cookie in this situation, and he's going to pat you on the head and say thank you for the cookie. He's going to say, it's about damn time you brought me the cookie, and hey, look, everybody, they didn't want to bring me the cookie. Here's the cookie. I'm not even going to eat the cookie. I'm going to show you the cookie for the next three years. I mean, and, right. I, and we all saw that coming. I don't know what they thought to accomplish here, Charles. That I look at this and I say, the issue had died down, and Donald Trump had bigger and better things that he needed to deal with, although he did make a, an offhand comment about it the other day when Martin Truex was at the White House. It, it was gone. It was done. And I know they wanted to deal with the issue, but I think they grossly underestimated the way this thing was going to explode, and I think they had no idea that what they ultimately tried to do was going to backfire on them the way it has. Right. I, I think it's hard to take a room full of extremely accomplished billionaires and and Roger Goodell, who's a hundred millionaire in his own right, 
and get that collection of minds together and become, I guess, aware of the fact that they were naive in thinking that for Donald Trump, this was either A, an NFL issue, B, a flag issue, C, a patriot, you know, patriotism issue, um, you know, D, a workplace defiance issue. It was none of those. It was a Donald Trump issue. That's what it was for Donald Trump. It wasn't a, an issue about anything else other than really what benefited him. And what I think is interesting is that sh- that point should have come across when Donald Trump spoke to, to Jerry Jones privately. You know, I think that was something that, um, you know, Jerry Jones could have relayed accurately to that group that, look, this is ultimately going to be about Donald. And regardless of what we do, um, it's red meat for his base. And no matter how we attempt to fix this, he's going to find a way to uh, continue to harp on it because it's good for him. That's why he's going to do it. So, and, and I said, you predicted it. They, they came out, they, they talked about this in the room. We're finding out that it was something that came you know, Mark Murphy, the, the president of the Packers came out and said, you know, this was something that, um, or the, the chairman of the board came out and said, we talked about that. I mean, we talked about Donald Trump before um, really getting into the, the anthem rule and, um, Clearly, it was something that was on their minds, and they thought they were fixing it somehow in, in a way that would, I guess, uh, wave him off the issue. And it, and it didn't do anything but, as you said, incite him further. Yeah, and so Donald Trump treats it as a victory. He rubs the NFL's face in it, and it potentially upsets and angers the segment of the fan base that the NFL has conveniently been ignoring, the people who support and understand the importance of peaceful protest and the notion that it's not disrespectful to the flag, to the anthem, to the military, to take a knee in an effort to bring attention to an important societal concern like police brutality against African-Americans and people of color. The NFL upsets those people, doesn't placate the Trump crowd. The players are upset. The union is upset. You got people in the media saying, what the hell is wrong with these people? I guess I call it a win. It's a win for someone. I mean, is I there, don't know but who. Is it, I mean, Charles, seriously. Media, I guess. I mean, it's something is, that we continue to talk about only because it, it, it just continues to produce. And um, I think, you know, something you touched on that's really interesting to me is to listen to Roger Goodell. You know, obviously he sent out this private memo to teams prior to the, the meetings in October where he said, you know, our fans, he kept, he made this reference to our fans, you know, believe that, you know, we want uh, everyone standing for the anthem and the respect of the flag. And again, he made a reference yesterday to, um, you know, this, this great number of fans that, that believe this is something that needs to be done. Well, what's interesting in this is, uh, you know, I wrote something where I had spoken to some sources that talked about some polling the NFL did with, with the Glover Park group, GPG, big uh, Washington, D.C., uh, polling firm. And part of what came back in that polling for the NFL, and, and they have to know this, is there is clearly a segment of fans that um, have a problem with what's going on with you know the anthem and they want players disciplined if they're not standing for it. But that's not the majority. I was told that flat out by a couple of sources. This is when the numbers came back, it's not the majority of NFL fans. In fact, it's a, it's a majority of a very... Um, a very compartmentalized segment, uh, you know, white baby boomer um, Republicans. I mean, that is the segment that is most pleased by what has happened here. And, and if you're playing to that segment, if that's quote unquote, our fans for Roger Goodell, that's who he's speaking of. 
who are you marginalizing then? That's, that's a pretty wide array, a wide swath of fans that doesn't fit into that box that you may be marginalizing that does not agree with what's going on right now. And, and is it simple enough to think that the NFL just decided the other people, while they might prefer to see Colin Kaepernick employed, they're really not going to make good on the huffing and the puffing that we're hearing from this small group that we want to to get off of our backs. And we'll go ahead and run the risk of pissing them off because these other people really do seem to be serious about hurting us in the pocketbook. Is it that simple? I, I think hurting, not only hurting them in the pocketbooks, but then also, you know, politically. Remember that, that box that I just talked about, um, white baby booming Republicans, who, who fits in that box? Donald Trump. He holds highest office. He, he wields significant political power, um, has a platform that reaches far and, and, you know, he essentially has the largest megaphone, you know, in, in, in our country. And, um, I think it's not only just not pissing off the people that they think can impact the bottom line most directly. I think it's also the people who have the ability to, um, dog them the longest. That, that, you know, have the, the largest amount of political sway and continue to shape PR above them in a way that they have to swing upward. And remember, this is a league that's not used to having to swing upward. And if anything, with Donald Trump, that's what it's having to do. You know, one of the things that has been bothering me, and I think it's bothering the NFL, because usually what happens is, Charles, I'll send one request in to Brian McCarthy, and he'll ignore me. And then when I send the second one, he knows I'm serious about it, and he responds. Well, he hasn't responded to my second request here. And you mentioned the Glover Park group, Joe Lockhart's group. Joe Lockhart, the former senior VP of public relations with the NFL. He's gone, and they haven't replaced him. And I look at the way this thing was handled this week, and I say, how in the hell are you doing this kind of business without a senior-level, in-house, accountable PR executive who can guide you through this? Because this is an absolute mess. And I don't know what PR guidance they're getting, but, but I think that's the biggest flaw that's manifested itself this week. Well, they, they definitely find themselves, I think, in the choppiest of waters, I think, in recent history. I mean, you know, obviously with the player safety concerns, the domestic violence concerns, um, you know, things have been bad before. But I think those were, were often issues that, given a long enough timeline, died out. I mean, this is something, or, or at least calmed down. This is something that has been cyclical in its fear. You know, it's really been going on since... Uh, you know, Colin Kaepernick, we're talking about the 2016 preseason when, when he knelt for the first time and Donald Trump, the candidate, came out and said, well, I think he needs to find a new country then. Um, really, so we're, we're talking about, what, August of, of 2016. And uh, this is a, that's a long time for a an issue of this magnitude to continue to be a problem, you know, from a public relations standpoint um, for the NFL. And, and interestingly enough, I think Joe Lockhart, I think part of the reason why Joe Lockhart isn't with the NFL right now is because of the fact that he engaged with Trump directly as the head, the chief communications officer of the NFL. He came out after, uh, you know, Trump famously called some of the, the comments that he made to, you know, Billy Bush about, about women locker room talk. And, you know, after, after the NFL kind of struck back at Trump regarding the kneeling, Joe Lockhart came and said, that's real locker room talk. And I, I think that absolutely made owners furious. 
And oddly enough, I think that's why Joe Lockhart isn't there now. And as you said, there's no real chief of communications at a time when it's clearly a a significant um, negative for the NFL right now, when they could use someone that is on point with the message and at least trying to do some damage control. And PR executive or not, Charles, somebody has to show real leadership. And you touched on something that has bothered me. The idea that with the application of any amount of foresight, the NFL knew last year that this is still out there, that the ingredients were hiding in plain sight for an explosion. When we know what Donald Trump had said about Colin Kaepernick, we know what Donald Trump likes to do. He likes to have these rallies from time to time where he says whatever comes into his mind. We know football season is going to come again. We know players are going to be kneeling from time to time, even though it had dramatically subsided. And it was just a matter of the dominoes lining up in exactly the wrong way for the NFL for this thing to mushroom to the point where it becomes impossible to easily fix it. And a year ago is when the commissioner or Joe Lockhart or somebody should have been all over this and gotten it resolved. Because if they would have come up with a practical solution, and I'm not saying that this solution would have been regarded as practical a year ago, but it would have been a lot easier to find their way out of the maze. The maze got a hell of a lot more complicated in the past year. And that all goes back to the commissioner. And I think this is part of why Jerry Jones wanted to get rid of him. And that's ultimately what Jones wanted to do. It's because the commissioner didn't have the foresight to keep the anthem from becoming the tremendous problem that it, that it was and still is for the league. Being behind the curve, right? Isn't that, isn't that the problem? I mean, with, with Jerry, particularly talk about Jerry Jones and some of the things that, uh, he's been critical of of Roger, both I think publicly and, and particularly privately, is this feeling that Roger has been behind the curve when it comes to um, you know really these sort of foreboding things that are happening that are, are you can sort of see them on the horizon and they're going to become more uh, problematic as you said mushroom that they always seem to be reactive rather than extremely proactive in the cases of. Uh, you know, whether it was domestic violence, whether it was health and safety, this, I mean, I mean, shoot, go all the way back to the star caps case. I don't even really can remember that. Oh, I remember the well. times that, yeah. I mean, the number of times they've been in some, you know, element of litigation, either with players or the NFLPA involved. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, as you said, there's an element of leadership, particularly when you're making, tens of millions of dollars to be a commissioner, largely based off of, you know, a television deal that I don't want to say was on autopilot, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of high-ranking executives that could have been brought in, you know, who, who could have taken advantage of a very fruitful business landscape to, to land a, a 10 to $12 billion television deal. Um, the league was pointed in the right direction. Roger's gotten paid a lot of money because of that. And, uh, you know, I think you look at these situations and perhaps some of Jerry Jones's criticism is warranted that, that they continue to suffer uh, some of these same pitfalls without you know, even knowing they're coming. They still fall in. I think one of the biggest attributes that Roger Goodell brings to the job is the willingness to stand there and absorb the flack with a straight face and, and with uh, clenched teeth and, and yeah. go ahead and give me your worst because... 
then the owners can hide behind the curtain and they don't get the scrutiny for the policies they set. And Roger's the one who's out there, as Tom Curran calls him, the world's highest paid pincushion. And that's one of the reasons why they don't want to make a change, because they need someone who will gladly take the heat so the owners don't have to absorb it. And he has done that. I mean, I absolutely agree with Tom. He has been a um, he's been remarkably um, he in a way he's almost the shield. You know, we he comes out during the draft, he gets booed. There's um, you know whether it's player safety issues, whether it's uh, the the Tom Brady Deflate Gate stuff, you know, Spygate, uh, Ezekiel Elliott. One thing after another, who becomes the the point person who all the complaints go through first? It's it's always Roger. And and in an interesting way, you bring this up. Think about this. In a way, at times, Roger has been used as a foil, almost to uplift the reputation of his own owners. Think of, think of how much positive press Jerry Jones has gotten in recent months, and and really even the last year for taking on. Roger Goodell, and it, and it put Jerry Jones in that position of, hey, look at, look at Jerry. Jerry's standing up to this guy, and he's holding him accountable, and, and it almost enhanced Jerry Jones's reputation to take on his own commissioner and be critical of his own commissioner because that is what is so popular. Boy, and that kind of blows my mind because it makes me wonder whether or not they pulled that off deliberately. And then I remind myself they're not nearly competent enough to pull that off deliberately, that something would have blown up along the way. And maybe it is feigned incompetence. I don't know. I, I don't want to give them too much credit. I, and, and I always try to be somewhat charitable because I don't want anyone at NBC to get that phone call that they get from time to time complaining about something I said. But when you look at the way things have been handled this week, from the way the kickoff rule, I think, is deliberately being neutered in advance of being euthanized, when you look at this helmet rule that has been a shell game from the moment they secretly introduced it at the ownership meeting back in March, and then all that gets pushed off the table, just as we're having mean, meaningful conversation and scrutiny of the new kickoff rule and the helmet rule, the anthem issue is back, and it's worse than ever for the NFL because they've taken a, a, a hole that, that was at rock bottom and they found a way to crack through even deeper below the surface where they, they had previously occupied. And I just, I, as unforced errors go, it's just one after another, just hitting balls into the net left and right, and I don't know when they're going to get this right. Well, not only that, Mike, what about gambling? Even gambling, now that now that everything's happened with the Supreme Court decision, I think one of the, the questions I heard often, and I'm sure you did as well after that Supreme Court decision, was what's the NFL going to do? And every indication I've gotten from anyone is it's they're going to take it slowly. They're going to watch and see what other leagues do. They're going to see, you know, what works in other places. They're not it, – it was not a sort of proactive if, – if anything, the only proactive part of the message was – well, we're going to go after something legislatively to try and pull the reins back on this. It was not really um, as proactive, I guess, uh, a message from Park Avenue as maybe even the owners. I mean, shoot, you look at Robert Kraft and Jerry Jones being part of, you know, daily fantasy teams. I mean, and, and the owners moving a franchise to Las Vegas. If anything, the owners have been more proactive on the sort of the archaic thought process of gambling than Park Avenue ever has, because if anything, Park Avenue has been nothing but pushback. Well, now it's here. Shouldn't you have a plan in place? Shouldn't you have a quote-unquote gambling czar? Shouldn't you have already had an entire uh, mechanism 
in place to deal with this? I mean, you're you're only a what's what are what are annual revenues up to now? Fourteen billion dollars a year. I mean, shouldn't shouldn't you have that infrastructure in place before it happens? But they don't, do they? It's it's once again reactive. Let's wait and see. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they knew which way the wind was blowing on this. The moment the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to take up the case that challenged the 1992 federal law prohibiting states from expanding sports wagering, that was the signal. Anybody who knows anything about the legal system knew the only reason they're taking this up is to strike down that law, and it's coming, and it's a state's rights issue, and the handwriting was was sandblasted into the wall. and. Yeah. It's like they had no plan. It's like, yeah, we'll wait to see what they do, and then we'll come up with a plan. Now, I don't think that the NBA and Major League Baseball and the PGA Tour had the right plan by going state to state and trying to finagle an integrity fee. But you don't wait to start lobbying Congress the day after the Supreme Court issues the decision. You're lobbying Congress every step of the way. And you're lining up support, and you're trying to get, whether you call it an integrity fee or something else, you want to get the Congress to impose that on the states. And you need to be ready to go, because the problem is, by the time Congress catches up, 10, 20 different states are going to have their own gambling right. programs that that uh, are Wild West, and maybe, the, maybe Congress eventually never gets around to it. I mean, maybe they just have no appetite for cooperating with the NFL whatsoever, especially after the NFL capitulated to the president. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible. I, I, I just think it's it's all about whether or not you're going to be aggressive and proactive. And, uh, you know, I think whether we're talking about the anthem issue or any number of, of topics that have come up over the last, you know, how many years, maybe maybe beyond, you know, re- getting new stadiums. I mean, that's in a way that's their infra- at least at the very least, their infrastructure has seemed to be a little more aggressive in, you know, getting new stadiums built, relocating franchises where they've had to. Although, you know, given how long it took L.A. to occur and, and Las Vegas, you could probably make an argument on the other side of that. But, yeah, it's uh, I, this is not a great public relations era for, for the NFL. And, and, again, going back to Roger, it's remarkable when you will consider, you know, how much money when Roger Goodell eventually leaves his post as commissioner, he'll walk out the door with. And it also, you know, coinciding with what has arguably been one of the most tumultuous, you know, two-decade periods in the sport. And I also think that other people in the league office bear responsibility. I hear complaints from time to time about general counsel Jeff Passion. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if, if his fingerprints were on the don't do anything button when it relates to gambling. Because I, I look at it this way. Look, I wasn't going to spend time doing think pieces about where gambling may go until I knew gambling was here. Because nobody is going to give a crap about it until we know that the floodgates have opened. But once they opened, I mean, it, it, there there are so many different angles, positive and negative. This is a great revenue opportunity for the NFL, a great chance to grow the sport on the uh, the, the tidal wave of gambling. And also, there are pitfalls everywhere. And for, right. for a creative, fertile mind, th- th- this is something they, like you say, Charles, they should have been doing it. They should have 50 things they should be doing to capitalize, 50 things they should be doing to protect the brand. And... I don't know what they're doing other than trying to prop up Orrin Hatch's uh, idea to come up with some sort of a federal regulatory scheme that's going to give them everything they want. Like, they're just going to show up at Congress and get it. That's the other thing, too. There's this there's this persistent arrogance that they just show up and they get what they want. And time and again, we see that, that they don't get what they want. Right. And, I mean, it, what's remarkable to me is, can you even name who the point person is right now with the league in gambling? That's not Roger. 
I can't. I don't. I don't know who the the specific point person. I know we use that term gambling czar, and it's almost like this negative term. But what we're saying is, who who is the person? You have a stadium person. You have an officiating person. You have, at the very least, at the very least, as you said, knowing where this was going in the court system. Do you not? Find the proper executive, and you and I both know that Roger Goodell likes to add to that second layer of executive branch at the NFL. There are plenty of vice presidents. There's there's no vice president of gambling, vice president of gaming, vice whatever you want, whatever the title is. Where is that person? Why was that person not in place and ready to go at the drop of hat? As soon as this came down, you should have had someone there to go, this is our point person. This is the person that's got the handle on this. Everything falls under this umbrella. There are so many other things. It's compartmentalized in so many other ways in the NFL, and yet that does not exist. Right now it seems to be under Roger, and as you said, probably the general counsel really behind Roger. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, this is remarkable to me, and I know we've gotten off on a whole other tangent. Um, well, it's your fault you brought it up. Stuff, no, but I, I think it's illustrative of one topic to the next, sort of what's going on. Oh, You're right, and one last thing on gambling. I think the new chief operating officer, Marianne Turk, who's replacing Todd Lywicki, based on some things I've heard, number one, the owners are very impressed with her, and number two, she seems to be the one who's kind of organically coming up with the ideas, the concerns, the things they need to be thinking about. So it very well could be that that she ends up de facto spearheading the efforts, at least until they decide to hire somebody and they give them the title. I think part of it, though, is they just don't want to acknowledge it. Like, this isn't, right. like, we don't want gambling. Like, ideally, we don't want it, although I think some owners realize, yeah, we do want it. But from the league office perspective, this complicates our life, and we just want this to go away, and we're not giving anyone a title that has gambling in it because then that would be acknowledging that it's real. It's just stupid. <laughs> stupid stubbornness, but I really do think that's at the heart of it. They, they think that they're going to wake up one morning and it's just going to be a bad dream and they won the case in the Supreme Court and there won't be any gambling. And Mike, isn't a, but you just hit on it. Isn't, isn't a lot of, when we, we look at a number of these problems, isn't it a lack of acknowledgement problem? Like there have been other problems, health and safety problems, lack of acknowledgement. We just won't acknowledge it and either we'll get past it and people will move on from it. You know, domestic violence, there was a time where they said, well, you know what, we're going to let, we'll let the, we'll let law enforcement handle that. We, we, it's going to be a lack of acknowledgement. If, if someone isn't prosecuted, you know, then we're, we're staying out of it. Then all of a sudden it mushrooms. And now, well, no, no, we're hiring people. Now we're going to be involved in the investigative process. Because why? The lack of acknowledgement problem didn't work. And the anthem, what was going on with Colin Kaepernick? As you said, could they have done something earlier to try and resolve this? Certainly. Did they? No. Instead, they tried to sort of left it alone. They said, you know, we're not going to acknowledge it. We're not going to acknowledge it. It grew, it mushroomed, and then it got to a point where they said, look, now we have to do something about it. It's, it's, I, I, that phrase, lack of acknowledgement, um, I think you hit on what a number of the problems stem from. And, and again, this goes back to just being in front of the curve rather than being behind it. Charles, the one thing they definitely don't want to acknowledge is the Colin Kaepernick collusion grievance, and that was the main reason I wanted to talk today. I mean, this has been a great conversation so far. Before I let you go, you've been charitable with your time. I don't want to tie you up for too long, but as it relates to Kaepernick, where do you think this goes from here? Because there have been a lot of depositions. There have been very few leaks from either side, and frankly, I believe if the NFL thought this was going well, they'd be leaking like crazy. 
that you know this is going their way, that's going their way, and and there's no concern here. I think the silence, for the most part, is an indication that the NFL is concerned about where this is going. But where do you think it goes from here? And people ask me all the time, when is there going to be a resolution? Do you have any idea when we're going to know when there's going to be an answer to whether or not there was collusion against Colin Kaepernick? Well, to answer the last part first, I mean, when is there going to be a resolution? I, I, I mean, at some point, the discovery, and I think it's going to be the system arbitrator is going to have to step in and say, I believe there's been enough discovery. I believe there's been, as far as the depositions have gone, um, I believe we're, we're at the end of where you need to be in terms of gathering evidence. And I think that would be prompted by the NFL essentially going to the system arbitrator and saying, hey, look, we've complied. We've given up, you know, how many owners, how many executives, reams of documents. At some point, someone's got to step forward and make a case from Colin Kaepernick's camp. So I, I think there, at some point we need to see the NFL, and I think that will happen. The NFL will step in and ask the system arbitrator to put an end to it. Um, you know, in terms of where it's going right now, you've referenced it before, this idea of, of there having to be sort of a smoking gun to, to prove collusion. And as you said, there really haven't been any leaks by either side, largely because there's you know, protective orders in place on, on the depositions and all of the whatever's being gathered right now. But I think the one thing that I think is interesting, and, and obviously it's what I wrote about today, is this idea that the NFL went out and asked fans you know, a few months into Colin Kaepernick's free agency, whether or not they thought he should have been signed by a team. And my natural question is, if you're the NFL and you're going to pull your fans about a specific player, and this is actually what I asked of Lee, characterize why you did that and why you needed the data. What do you do with the data? You don't just go get data for no reason. You, if you, if say 100% of fans came back and said, we don't think Colin Kaepernick should have been signed by a team. Okay, now you have that number. What does that mean to the NFL? Why did you need it? What are you going to do with it? And I think the fact that this GPG poll happened, that there were questions asked specifically about Colin Kaepernick, which as far as I know is unprecedented in terms of a specific player being inserted into a poll, in particular as it pertains to their employment, and asking fans whether they believe they should be employed, what did the NFL do with that information once it got it? And why did it go and seek it in the first place? So this takes this from, hey, really talented guy, um, not getting signed, probably deserves a job in the league, multiple you know, depositions or whatever where people are saying he's a starting quarterback. But you know, now this takes it beyond that. It's not just talented guy doesn't have a job. It's talented guy who doesn't have a job. And, oh, by the way, the centerpiece, your league office, decided to ask fans only a few months into his unemployment do you think he shouldn't be employed? Why? So that I think that's sort of the next step for, for Kaepernick's camp is to determine, you know, A, we need to get this GPG poll. We need to look at it. We need to figure out statistically what all is in it, why it was asked, who asked for it, and then what was the reaction once the league had it in its hands. And I think the key is what did they do with it? And common sense tells me you don't go out and commission this thing if you're just going to look at it and say, oh, okay, I was curious. Now I'm just going to stick this <laughs> right. in a file and never look at it again. Right? It's getting disseminated to others in the league who have a vested interest in knowing which way the wind is blowing. And whether it's John Mara in his role as chairman of the Management Council Executive Committee and essentially de facto commissioner in the eyes of some, whether it's owners who may be interested or considering Colin Kaepernick. And you know how human 
beings interact. You're not thinking about what text messages and emails are potentially going to end up in litigation right. as these events are happening. And I think the NFL sufficiently able to delude itself into never believing that there was ever going to be any type of litigation involving Colin Kaepernick. And, and uh, I think we're eventually going to find out what this was used for. But I don't know why you get it if you're not going to use it to help guide your teams toward what they should and shouldn't do. And that's where I think the collusion is going to come from here. It's not going to be that there was a meeting, Charles, of 32 teams where they agreed among themselves to not to not sign Colin Kaepernick. I think it's going to be the league office basically being the fire hose that was spraying the message to any teams that may have been interested in it. And, and Mike, what's, what, from, your, from your legal expertise, your lawyer, does the league think about this? What kind of jeopardy and, and, and how naive do you have to be to put yourself in a position where you could collude without even really meaning to? Don't you put yourself, say you ask that question of your fan, and say, well, let's make up a number, 85% come back and say, we, didn't believe, we don't believe Colin Kaepernick deserves to have a job. Well, now you have that piece of information in your brain, right? If you're an executive, any of these executives, now that it's in your brain, isn't that dangerous moving forward, given that he had not been signed? Say an owner says to one of the executives who was privy to this information, man, I really wonder what fans think. I'm very curious what NFL fans think about Colin Kaepernick not being signed. And you say, well, geez, actually, we did a poll, and 85% said that they don't believe he should be signed. You see what I'm saying? Did the, how could the league have put itself in a position to have information that maybe you really don't want to have in your head because you could end up disseminating it. And this guy could never get signed. And guess where you are now? You're in the middle of something you never thought you'd be in the middle of. And, oh, man, you went and you got that poll and you had the information and maybe you gave it out without even really intending to poison the well. But you went and you got the information and you did it anyway without even meaning to do it. You know, meaning to poison the well. You just went and got a piece of information that, shoot, you probably shouldn't have gotten in hindsight because people could ask you about it and that could end up helping to form opinions. And here's the other thing, too. I think the well was already poisoned. It was almost a year ago to the day that John Mara, I mentioned him earlier, the chairman of the Management Council Executive Committee, very influential owner. He was speaking to Jenny Vrentis of the MMQB, and he said, and it was almost gratuitous, all my years being in the league, I have never received more emotional mail from people than I did yeah. about that issue. If any of your players ever do that, we are never coming to another Giants game. It wasn't one or two letters. It was a lot. It's an emotional, emotional issue for a lot of people more so than any other issue I've run into. I sure hope Mark Garrigus has requested production of all these letters that people are sitting around writing to John Mara, who didn't even have a player who was doing this. I don't understand who's who in the Giants fan base is sufficiently pissed off about a guy who plays for a team on the other side of the country that they're going to send hate mail to John Mara over it. And he's coming off of, at the time, one of the most embarrassing incidents that I can remember, especially post-Ray Rice, with the Josh Brown morass. So... Yeah. I, it's just I, I think the well was poisoned. I think this is just another strain of poison that they threw into it when they did this when they did this uh, survey. And and I think you could even argue, you know, the fact that John Mayer came out and said that publicly, he he is a partner of 31 other franchises, right? They're all partners together. He's partnered with the league office. He's partnered with all these people. When you come out and you say that publicly. 
you you could not intend to be influential amongst your group of partners, but when you come out and you say that and say you're any any say you're the the Glazers, say you're uh, you know uh, Woody Johnson, anyone, uh, you know, say you're Bob McNair. And you read John Mara say that. And as you said, John Mara is not, you know, it's a cornerstone family, cornerstone franchise, a number of influential seats on a number of different um, committees, all these different things. But, you know, you're, you're Bob McNair and you read John Mara say that and you go, geez, yeah, you know, man, I, I bet my fans are really, you know, what if we thought about signing Colin Kaepernick? And I hear John Mara saying, man, I, I, you know, this is so divisive and I don't think my fans and all – so in a way, your other 31 partners, are you really doing them a service to put that out there? You know, and could you be shaping the thoughts of the group again, once again, in an unintended way? But at the end of the day, when we get through all this and you have a number of owners all saying, you know, saying or doing things or polls or numbers, all of a sudden everyone starts to influence each other through all these unintended actions. I know everyone says, well, collusion, everybody has to get together in a room and do it. I think there can be other forms of collusion, and I could be completely wrong legally. You're the lawyer. I'm not. But I think there are other ways that business partners could, in an unintended way, collude together without specifically saying to each other, hey, let's collude. You know, Charles Instead Wendell, of yeah. sending each other signals by going, wow, this is really negative. This is how our, our fan base feels. And then the next owner says, geez, my fan base probably feels that way too. Or, you know, man, maybe I better test the water before I do anything. And now you've got two owners that don't want to sign a guy for the same reason. So it's two things, uh, two things. I think that I think the NFL routinely colludes via the management council with the management council telling teams what they can and can't do, what they should and shouldn't do. I think that steers them in directions that maybe they otherwise wouldn't go. And that becomes a tool for collusion. And we've got John Mara, who's the head of that committee saying what he said publicly, publicly announcing this. And, and other owners are going to see it, and they're going to say, oh, shit, this is the last thing I want. Now, take, yeah. let me take this a step farther, because May the 29th of last year, when we wrote the item at PFT based upon Mara's comments, it would have been within a week or so that they had their quarterly meeting, where they're mm-hmm. all together, and this is one of the issues. Roger Goodell, every chance that people had to question him, they asked whether or not Colin Kaepernick's being shunned by the NFL. So chances are John Mara at some point sitting around with his with his peers, blurts out all the hate mail that he's getting, assuming that he, I still have a hard time seeing John Mara sitting there with his glasses down at the edge of his nose and a letter opener ripping it open, and here's this piece of hate mail and that piece of hate mail. That I just don't see, I don't, I don't, I, I hate to, I'm not saying he's lying, I'm just having a hard time believing that it happened. But regardless of whether it did or he didn't, this is the message that he surely was sharing with his colleagues, and at some point, yeah, it's going to get to the point where they say, we can't touch this guy, otherwise there's going to be a fan revolt, even if it's only one small subset of the fan base that would revolt. Right. I, I think it's a, it's naive of any of us to think that um, owners don't have a number of discussions, whether it's off-the-cuff, serious agenda items. I mean, there are a lot of ways to communicate between franchises and between each other, and it is a fraternity. You know, regardless of what people want to believe, this is a very small fraternity that's very difficult to get into. And the vast majority of owners are very close. And I don't think it takes much in a small fraternity like that to share some opinions or have some conversations or even, as you said, say something to MMQB, which is consumed by, you know, other people, other executives in the league, other franchises, or say it on TV. 
um, or hold a poll, you know, take a poll and get a number. You know, I, I don't think it, I think influence in the NFL in some ways can be very hard and uh, it can be very, you know, difficult to get everyone on the same page. And then I think in other ways that, you know, influence can be as simple as someone who's very influential sharing an opinion. And then that's a seed in the minds of other business partners. And Charles, we're having this conversation without the benefit of what Mark Garrigus has had for months, pages after pages after pages of email messages and text messages that surely were sent among and between owners and members of the league office without any thought that anyone was ever going to see those again. And we may see at some point in black and white the influence that was being applied by the league office to the various teams that, that as I reported earlier this week, the multiple teams viewed Colin Kaepernick as a starter then, they view him as a starter now. So something derailed the effort to give him a job, and I have a feeling that at some point we're going to find that evidence. There's going to be a lot of people who are surprised because a lot of people have said Kaepernick has no chance. Why is he wasting his time? Why is he wasting his money? And I just think very methodically they've been going brick by brick, step by step. And uh, and again, we're able to we're able to come up with reasonable assumptions about what may have happened without the benefit of those emails and text messages. Just wait until those become available. But, but Mike, we do have the benefit of one thing that we've never had before. Someone taped that meeting between a select group of owners and the players coalition. And we've seen direct quotes from owners in that meeting, talking about Donald Trump, talking about problems, talking about needing a proxy, talking about needing to end things. And, and I would, I would very, very strongly encourage people to go out, find what's been printed about what was said in that meeting, because I think it's very instructive to how owners speak to each other in private closed door meetings in which they say, Hey, let's keep this in the room. You know, let's keep this confidential. Someone breached that, but in breaching it, they showed you, they gave you a little window into how owners speak to each other. And then obviously the players coalition inside of a room in which they never think something's going to come out. And I, I think a lot of those comments were eyebrow raising and I think they're very telling in terms of now we get to see how some members of this fraternity are willing to speak to each other in front of each other and in full view of, of some players just because they believe they'll never get out. Well this is a conversation that we both knew was being recorded. I hope I assume you knew that all along. Th these interviews go well when it feels like it's a conversation that two guys are having on the telephone and Charles the last 40 minutes have felt like that. I appreciate your time very much. I'm sorry to keep you as long as I did. Let's do this again. There's always going to be something interesting to talk about and uh, whether it's a slow week or whether it's one of the busiest off-season weeks I can remember that didn't come in the month of March. It's been a crazy few days and and thanks for helping us understand and break it all down. Absolutely. It's always my pleasure, Mike. All right. Thanks to Charles Robinson. I expected maybe 20 minutes. I always feel badly when I keep people a lot longer than I'd hoped to keep them because I know they have other stuff to do. But it was uh, an interesting and enlightening conversation. And yeah, after he and I were done with the actual interview slash recorded conversation, we were talking about this. I mean, at some point down the road, we may look back on these past couple of years in NFL history and American history and wonder exactly what in the hell was going on. And uh, hopefully we'll look back on it and say, hey, we somehow survived it all. All right. Before we can wrap up the podcast, time to answer some of your questions. I went with a Joker gif from The Dark Knight just because I'm feeling, I'm feeling that, 
that way today. Not that I want to make a pencil disappear or anything, but I'm just kind of feeling, you know, it's just it dark. Dark is how the past couple of days have felt, thanks to the NFL's decision to clumsily revisit the anthem issue and somehow make a bad situation worse. All right, let's answer some questions. PFTPM Posse has the floor for the first several. Uh, boy, there's a lot from PFTPM Posse. Of course, many of them are passed along from others who ask questions. Here we go. I always thought players weren't allowed to be on social media or something for 90 minutes before and after a game is played, maybe just before. That rule will prevent them from staying in the locker room live streaming. That's a good point. We were meandering today, Stats and I, through the things that could be done before the game. And if there are players who are in the locker room, they could live stream some sort of a protest from the locker room right before kickoff. That would get them fined under the NFL's social media policy. Now they may happily pay the fine. The fine for violating the social media policy, which I think is peanuts, five grand, ten grand, something like that. It's, it's in the Randy Moss straight cash homie territory that when you're that rich, you don't write a check for 10 grand. But uh, remember that was 10 grand to me. That was after the mooning incident. Maybe they look at it and say, okay, the fine for protesting out on the field is X. The fine for live streaming a message from the locker room is a lot less than that. Maybe we'll just do it anyway. But good point, PFTP and Posse. Thank you for keeping us honest. There would be a potential violation or not potential actual violation of the social media policy another one from the pftpm posse jerry jones always says any publicity is good publicity but this will only get worse for the nfl while there's a loud vocal minority taking cues from potus to rant rave and throw a fit there's also a majority out there who may not stand for this and go elsewhere and look i i think what happened was this i think and some of this came up during the conversation with charles robinson I think the NFL decided that it had reason to fear the segment of the fan base that is pissed off about protests more than they fear the segment of the fan base that may be pissed off if the protests are stifled. For whatever reason, they made that decision. They decided that they were going to heed the complaints from the conservative white baby boomer types who are offended by anything that can be perceived as disrespect of the flag, the anthem, and the military. And we're not worried about the millennials, the African-Americans, those who showed up in this poll. Because that's one of the things that's been lost in all of this. The, the poll didn't show that fans from all walks of life were offended. There was one specific demographic that was, and there were other specific demographics that were the opposite of offended. They approve of this, they understand it, and they support it. So what happened here is the NFL found a way to piss off everyone. They've, and I don't know that they've pissed off the, the Trump side of this, although there are people who are upset by the fact that players who would otherwise protest are going to be allowed to stay in the locker room. I mean, some say that these guys should be dragged out forcibly, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that's what it feels like. I mean, if, if you are facing professional consequences, fines, suspensions potentially, not having a job, you're figuratively being dragged out and forced to comply. It's forced patriotism. So there are people who are upset that there isn't a mandate that you must stand, even if you don't want to. 
even if it goes against everything you believe, even if you are morally opposed to standing for the national anthem because of what you regard the American government to stand for. And it's our right to feel that way. It's, and I'm not, I'm not, I look, I stand when I'm at a sporting event, I stand for the anthem. If I'm out in the crowd, if I'm in the press box, I stand for the anthem. I find the flag. I stand toward, I put my hand over my heart. This country has given my family many opportunities. My Italian grandparents came over here and I don't know much about their story or what motivated them to leave Italy and come to the United States, but they wanted a better life for themselves, their children and their children's children. And I'd like to think my life is better here than it would have been if the family had stayed in Italy. So I'm, I'm personal. My personal journey does not entail the kinds of, of uh, horrors that some have encountered interacting with law enforcement officials, living in communities where you feel forgotten and you feel like there's no way out. I mean, I, so I, I, I respect what other people believe based upon their own personal experiences. And I just can't imagine Telling other people how to live and calling yourself an American. This country is founded on the idea that we are free to do what we want. As long as we're not breaking the laws and specifically as long as we're not infringing upon the rights of others. But it gets back to what I always say. I'm more libertarian than anything because I just want to be left alone. Hey, government, stay out of my shit. I won't tell other people what to do. Don't tell me what to do. Let's go live our lives. Let's go pursue happiness. Let's go be with our families. Let's go make our money. Let's go buy the stuff we want to buy. Let's go on the vacations we want to go on. Let's enjoy the things we want to enjoy. Let's live our lives to the fullest until we're dead and gone. That's the way it should be. So bottom line is they're pissing off everybody. Or they're not making anyone happy. I mean, really, what comes out of Wednesday that the NFL can look at and be proud of? Is there a damn thing that the league can be proud of? I think the only thing to be proud of is the fact that Jed York realizes that this issue requires no concession sales during the national anthem. And Christopher Johnson, the Jet CEO, is willing to take the heat, is willing to pay the fines that come out of his players potentially not standing during the national anthem. That's the only thing the NFL would be proud of, and <laughs> that's not what they want. They, they don't want anything other than bottom line, stand for the anthem, please get President Trump and his followers off of our backs, and, and let's find a way to set the clock back to zero. And the only way to do it, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it one more time, collective bargaining with the union, just like the NBA did. That's how they secured the rule that says you must stand for the anthem, collective bargaining. The NFL needs to do that. They don't want to do it because they don't want to give anything up. So instead of doing the right thing, sitting down and having a dialogue and making a concession and making a, a fair exchange to the union for the ability to say NFL and NFLPA jointly agree that players will stand for the anthem and respect the flag. They don't want to give it up. They're not going to get it. It's going to continue to be a mess until they do the right thing. And it's so obvious to me. And it's probably obvious to some of them. They just don't want to do it because ultimately, as I've said before, this isn't about Money, this isn't about race, this isn't about the flag, this is about control. And you don't tell us what we're going to do. We tell you what you're going to do. All right, next question. PFTP and Posse, how do you see the NFLPA countering this? What options do they realistically have? 
will this fight be over? Whether or not the anthem issue is collectively bargained, does it matter that the fight is over a constitutional right? See, the constitutional right only applies when there's state action. Now, I've often wondered whether or not having partial or full public funding of a stadium somehow brings constitutional principles into play. But what will happen is this. Jeffrey Kessler, the excellent outside lawyer for the NFLPA, will get together with NFLPA leadership and they will brainstorm. And they will think of everything they can, all the different avenues out there, whether it's arguing that the NFL failed to engage in collective bargaining on a mandatory subject of bargaining, whether or not there's a potential antitrust violation. You know, there are certain things you have to do under the CBA. There are certain things that maybe you can take outside the CBA, not just to the the National Labor Relations Board, but to a federal court. There's all sorts of different things that the NFLPA can do. And I think they're going to be very motivated to do it. I think the players, for the most part, are going to want this fight to be joined. And I think you're protecting the players because to the extent that they are going to be inclined to protest and get themselves in trouble, you need to, as a union, fight for a ruling that these things don't get them in trouble. PFTPM policy. Whatever happened to players meeting with members of military police, etc.? And they came up with the idea to kneel because it would not disrespect the flag in the military. Is that just forgotten because someone is shouting louder? Now, the video is floating around of Nate Boyer, the former Green Beret who tried to be an NFL long snapper. His reaction to the Colin Kaepernick sitting and Nate Boyer getting together with Colin Kaepernick and Boyer helping Kaepernick come up with the idea that that kneeling is the appropriate way to do this. That, that it shows respect. You're taking a knee. You're facing the flag. You're just not standing. Better than sitting. Better than turning your back on the flag. Nate Boyer was on board with it, and that was the compromise. I remember when Jay Glazer first explained this on one of the early Sundays of the 2016 season. That was the compromise that Colin Kaepernick engaged in, but that's not good enough when you have the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Armed Forces standing up saying... I want to see one of these owners, when one of these players kneels for the anthem, say, get that son of a bitch off the field, you're fired. All right, what else? There's an interesting angle to all this that didn't come up during my conversation with Charles Robinson that I'm going to write about at PFT. I haven't had a chance to really think it through. But apparently, there's a federal statute that prohibits the president and the vice president from influencing private employment decisions and that makes it not the basis for a civil action makes it a crime and at a time when there is at least one prosecutor keeping very close watch over the things the president has said and done during his time in office and plenty of other prosecutors who would have jurisdiction over this type of a situation is it possible it, it's one of those things that seems too easy, but is it possible that the get that son of a bitch off the field line, coupled with the efforts by the NFL to essentially get that son of a bitch off the field, right, and the protest, you're, you're staying in the locker room, and, and also no employment for Colin Kaepernick or Eric Reed, is that enough to give rise to a violation of the law by both the president and the vice president? Wouldn't that be fascinating? If there's a finding that while in office, they violated this statute. Let me tell you the statute itself. 
The statute is 18 U.S.C. Section 227. It's wrong for a member of Congress or employees of the legislative or executive branches, the, the president and the vice president, from wrongfully influencing a private entity's employment decisions. So I'm going to think about this. I'm going to research it. I'm going to write about it at PFT. But man, it just it's one of those things where, and I know when I practice law, you would stumble over ideas that look too convenient. They look too clean. They look too easy. Usually when that, it's like the, it's the legal industry equivalent of something being too good to be true. Like, oh man, this is a silver bullet and, and oh wow, this is great if we can work this out. And oh my goodness. And then you research it, research, and you're like, ah shit, we're not going to be able to pull it off. So I want to research this before I come to any conclusions as to whether or not there's anything there. But my God, if there's something there, that could make things very, very interesting, even more interesting for uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. All right, back to the questions. Tom G. Post via the PFTPM policy. Do you think the Eagles will attend the White House given the rhetoric is starting to ramp up again due to the owners attempting to placate POTUS? Malcolm Jenkins is now a national figure as reported by the New York Times. Look, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I think guys who weren't going to go still aren't going to go. And guys who were going to go are probably still going to go. And I don't know. If anything, it's going to cause more guys to not go. Here's another point while I'm thinking of it. And I've been meaning to write about this. I saw someone tweet this today, and it reminded me of something that we had said because it specifically mentioned what we had said a year ago that if players really want to take a stand, they just need to join together and boycott the offseason workouts. And I had said that the best way to do that is have the quarterbacks say, we're not coming. You know, The quarterback, the starting quarterback is the leader of the team. And I'd like to think that even though it would be very difficult to get all 90 guys to not show up, if you could get all of the quarterbacks on the depth chart to not go to the OTA, that that would be a way to flex the muscle of the players against the league. And what better time to do that than today, right? Everybody's in the middle of OTAs. Today was an OTA day. What better way to do it than to have the quarterback, the starting quarterback, call up the rest of the guys on the depth chart and say, hey, guys, we're not going today. And if you go, you're going to have a problem with me. So we're staying out. Good luck having football practice without quarterbacks. Tom Curran said on PFT Live yesterday they've had Nick Casario out there throwing passes at Patriots OTAs because of of Tom Brady being gone. But, you know, if if they're offended by this, that's what they should do. And it tells me that if they won't do that, they're never going to stay away from regular season game checks. Never, ever. PFT PM Posse, a question focusing on the constitutional rights by virtue of the public funding, something we've already discussed. And uh, I, there's nothing more to add. Brady, our good friend at BFLOFO Show, urging me to answer the question. I've already addressed it. It's quite possible that the public funding of the stadiums makes this state action, as state action would be defined under the constitutional precedents. And I haven't researched those in years. I never practiced constitutional law. I had a couple of constitutional law classes years ago, but it's possible that getting public funding for these stadiums and having public bodies that oversee the stadiums transform these venues into public places, allowing that right to engage in First Amendment freedom of expression to overcome the the private employment interests of the National Football League. Now, it would only apply in the in the stadiums that have the public assistance, but most of them do. Most of them do.
PFTP on pause. The thing just a good day for me to drop the very first F-bomb by me on PFTPM. Chris Sims had like eight or nine of them because of everything that's happened this week. Oh, man, there's some, I can't read this word for word. If I read this word for word, PFTPM Posse, uh, I, I'm not going to have a job come Friday. So uh, I'm not going to read this one word for word. This one, this one would definitely result in a phone call to one or more of the executives at NBC Sports. That's for damn sure. PFTPM Posse, what can we as fans and the PFTPM Posse do to make our voices heard when it comes to this BS with the NFL? We are the ones paying for it and keeping them billionaires, but I don't want to watch football. I don't want to watch less football, though I watch less because officials and the NFL lies with malicious intent, I feel. Again, that's the language of the PFTPM Posse, not nearly as hostile as the one I didn't read. You know, here's here's what you can... I, I don't know what you can do. Because you're, and, and look, last year when the people in Trump's base were huffing and puffing about not watching football, I, I didn't believe it. And I still don't believe it. And I don't think the ratings are down because there's some segment of the fan base that has turned off football. And people try to tell me an, anecdotally, oh, no, I've had people, people say they don't watch, but that, I think could all be lying, right? I mean, We've accepted now the fact that you say whatever you want to advance whatever political agenda you have. I don't believe it. I don't, if it's, because I know for me, it would take a hell of a lot to get me to say, I'm not going to watch that thing that I enjoy. I enjoy football. I'm watching football. I'm following football. And short of me suffering ongoing electric shocks anytime I would turn on the TV, I mean, it would have to be a clockwork orange type of a situation for me to say I'm not watching football. Now, I worry that football is going to change to the point where I say, oh, man, I don't like this. But you know what? Over the years, I've gone. I remember when they came out like with the, the goofy Riddell helmet with that that funky face mask that Peyton Manning started wearing, thinking, oh, this looks ugly. Why are they doing this? Oh, you get used to it. All oh, these uniforms are hideous. Why are they doing it? Oh, you get used to it. Football's still football. And there's something about football that that I'm never going to not want to watch. So I don't know what you can do. I mean, I guess you can write a bunch of hostile letters to John Mara like he supposedly got over a guy who was kneeling for the anthem who didn't even play for the Giants. I don't know. I don't think they're going to listen. They're going to listen to who they want to listen to. And I don't think they're going to listen to anybody they don't want to listen to. And, you know, the only way to get their attention is to hit them in the pocketbook. But to hit them in the pocketbook, you end up hurting yourself. That's the conundrum. All right, a little lighter fare here. Mike Likes Dirt has a question that comes via the PFTPM posse. Which Michael Clayton character do you most identify with amid NFL controversy? Michael Clayton, played by George Clooney, Tilda Swinton, or Arthur, the partner who went rogue? I, I, I that ident- identify with as myself? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. That's a deep question. I got to think about that one. All I know is this. When I see something that I don't agree with, I'm going to say something about it. And if somebody doesn't like it, I don't care. I'm trying to make the league as good as it can be. I'm trying to protect the thing that I grew up as a little boy. I remember I had a football helmet that had a pencil sharpener inside of it. A tiny little helmet, and it had one of those pencil sharpeners jammed up in there. Back when they actually... Do they still use pencils? Matt Patricia does. Does anybody else? 
and and I was just I became fascinated with football and and you know football cards and all the things that indoctrinated you back in the 70s football cards the electric football game now it's Madden I guess but I I mean you know I I come at this with pure intentions I want the NFL to be as great as it can be I'm a fan of the NFL but that doesn't mean I'm going to be a fanboy of the NFL Right? I'm not a fan of 345 Park Avenue. I'm a fan of the NFL and its teams. And if they're doing things that I think are hurting or jeopardizing the brand, I'm going to say so. So I don't know. I guess it would be more like Arthur than, than Michael Clayton. But, but Arthur, yeah, Ar- well, Arthur got himself killed, though. Michael Clayton almost got himself killed. I guess it's better to be almost killed than killed. So I, I don't know. I'd, I'd rather identify more with, you know, with Michael Clayton. I got to watch that again. I, that's one of those once or twice a year I go back and watch it and I enjoy it every time. All right. Let's see what else. I, and, and I said I was just going to go a little bit longer because we had the 40 minutes with Charles Robinson. Let's see what else we have here. Uh, I'm going to get some non-PFTPM posse questions, uh, at least non-PFTPM posse questions from the account. Leapers 500, is there a possibility fans begin to boycott the NFL for real over this heavy-handedness and their seeming kowtowing to Trump? Do the owners not care since almost all of them are Trump supporters or at least conservatives? No, there's a lot of them that don't support Trump. There's a lot who are uh, who are conservatives who don't support Trump. I, I I just I think that it all comes back to control. I don't think it's hit them in their pocketbook. I don't think it's about race. I don't think it's about uh, the flag. I think it's about control. And and to the extent it's about control, there's a subtle racial component to it because the players are predominantly African American and the owners are exclusively white, but almost exclusively white, but. I I uh I think it's about how dare you? You don't tell us how we're going to run our business. You don't disrupt the way we run our business. We disrupt the way you run your business. I really think that's at the heart of it. The Impact 99, what small market team could or should move to a bigger market in the near future? Hashtag Stan Humphreys. Thank you for listening to yesterday's show. I got to remember to to put the secret name into the end of today's broadcast. This Bill's stuff. And and look, here's the thing. Bills fans and folks in Buffalo are not going to want to accept the possibility that the Bills would move. But the comments from Kim Pagula about a stadium, yeah, there's no there's no public money. The fans don't want to pay for PSLs. They don't want to pay for higher tickets. We don't have a billion and a half laying around. If we did, well, we, we use that to buy the team. If, if there's another city that is going to pony up that which the government in Buffalo won't, after 2022, the Bills could leave. And we've seen nearly 10% of the league relocate, or at least have permission to relocate in the past two years. They're going to go where the money and the people are. I've been saying that for years. It's the old Sam Kinison bit. How he, his, his solution for, uh, for starvation in Africa, go to where the food is, and he'd scream and yell like a, like a, a maniac. You go to where the money and the people are. And I think that the small market teams are going to realign based upon where the money is and where the people are and where the opportunities are to make money. And if you don't have the money to buy your own stadium and build your own stadium and you don't have public money in your current locale, then the public money comes somewhere else and this looks pretty damn attractive to us. We're going to go 
build our stadium and move our team there. I don't think we can rule that out. And th- th- look, they don't want you to think it's a possibility until it happens. They don't want you to think it's going to happen until it happens. But I think you got to read between the lines of what Kim Pagula said and take it seriously as a possibility. The Impact 99 is Arizona rebuilding, and they just don't want to admit it, or are they ready to compete with Seattle and San Francisco? They're rebuilding, and they don't want to admit it. Nobody wants to admit that they're rebuilding. Nobody does. And some of the players think that they still are competing at a high level like David Johnson. And if he's healthy and as effective as he was two years ago, then maybe they will be better than we expect. There's always teams that are better than we expect, but right now they look like they are well behind the Rams, the Seahawks, and the 49ers. Leapers 500, do you agree with my assessment that Christian Bale is the best Batman, but Michael Keaton is the best Bruce Wayne? I, you know, the, the Batman movie series for me has been thoroughly disappointing. And I was the kid who loved Batman. I was always Batman over Superman. I never really cared about Superman. I loved Batman. There was something about Batman because he didn't have any superpowers. He just had a shitload of money, Right. And he didn't just sit back and enjoy a shitload of money. He put himself in physical peril. He used that money to buy really expensive gadgets that he used to fight crime. I mean, that's that's better than giving to charity, right? You become the charity. And you're out there putting yourself on the line, fighting the bad guys. There was some, I, I don't know what it was about Batman, but Batman resonated for me. But the movies, I remember being so excited in 1989 to go see the Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton Batman. And I just remember thinking... And I I bought the, the soundtrack beforehand. I thought the soundtrack was great. Got it on a cassette, the Prince soundtrack. Every once in a while, I'll listen to that on one of the streaming services. It's great. I was so excited for that movie. And I remember sitting there thinking, is this really it? How am I going to talk myself into thinking this was a good movie? It really wasn't a very good movie. And then the next one came out, Batman Returns, same deal. Danny DeVito is a penguin. Ugh. And then the one, then the, what was the one after that with the, the Riddler and Mr. Freeze? And there was never a good one. And, and I remember going to see Batman Begins, and it's like, will this ever end? And The Dark Knight wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. And I can't remember if I ever saw the one, what was the one? The Dark Knight Rises, the one in Pittsburgh where they blew up the stadium? I, I've, I've been thoroughly disappointed with the Batman movies. All right, I should probably wrap this up. I got a couple other things I got to do. Let, let me just call it. I appreciate all of the of the questions we're going to do this again tomorrow and i am going to have um oh, wait, there's one more question somebody wants to peel back the curtain here I've, I've just seen this one as i scroll when you have a guest like troy vincent call in right before a break do you interview him some during the break to get ready for the real interview on the air uh the, the question was different than what i thought it was going to be um because we had troy vincent unexpectedly Wednesday morning on PFT Live. I was going to talk to him between 11 and 12 Eastern, and it was going to be for the PFT PM podcast. During the show, I get an email from the league office. Hey, he can only do it right now. So what we had him do was call in. We were we were interviewing Tom Curran on the show with the understanding that if Troy calls, we're going to say goodbye to Tom, and Tom was okay with that. We ended up getting about 10 minutes out of Tom. Troy called in, so we took a break. And what I did during the break, I explained to Troy what was going to happen. We had a TV-only segment where we talked to him about the kickoff, and then we had our final segment of the show. And I explained to him, both of those segments have a hard break where we have to go. When you hear them count down to four, we have to be done. I don't know why it's four, but the way that it goes through radio and TV and out into everyone's home, you have to be done at four. And we did the TV segment only, and it worked perfectly. And then we did the segment at the end, and... 
we almost blew right through the hard break into the next show. But uh, that's one of the that's I I don't like having guests in segments where there's a hard break. But you take a guy when you can get him. You know, we usually do guests at seven o'clock, eight o'clock, seven thirty-five, and eight thirty-five Eastern. Those are the floating breaks where I can take as long as I need to, and if somebody's giving a long answer, then I can let them finish and and I can wrap after that. When you have those hard breaks, we had it happen with Rick Spielman. We had it kind of happen with Troy. It's happened one or two other times where it ends up being uh, a little clunky. All right, hopefully today wasn't too clunky. Thanks again to Charles Robinson. We'll do this again tomorrow with Mike Pereira. And uh, before we go, let's see. I just have to say one thing here. Record and fact book. Looking for some names here. I want to find an obscure name that can be added to the list of Mark Sanchez, Andy Janovich, and Stan Humphreys. And that name is... That name is... None of these are obscure enough. Let's see. There's a lot of names in here. You just have to find some obscure ones. Uh, it's kind of kind of losing the, uh, the steam here. How about this one? How about... Uh, how about Steve Broussard? Steve Broussard. You don't get anything if you mention him on Twitter other than my satisfaction. Sometimes I'll like the tweet if I see Steve Broussard. That's B-R-O-U-S-S-A-R-D. Thanks for your time today. Check us out around the clock at profootballtalk.com. PFT Live tomorrow morning. We're going to try to get Seth Wickersham on the show. That's a day without Chris Sims. And then we're going to have Mike Pereira on tomorrow's PFTPM. Have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.